House of El Diablo, as they would say in Mexico, is the movie we're watching today with a very special guest, our horror correspondent, as some may call him, Trevor Scary Boy Dylan. You can check out the movies he co-wrote and co-directed with his partner Ian Hawk at WatchAlter.com or on Alter's YouTube page. They are called The Vicious and Foxwood, and they are both excellent. But before we get into it, I want to thank you for checking out the podcast. I hope you can join us in conversation for our next film, Cure, the 1997 Japanese horror film by Kiyoshi Kurosawa. This ain't your mama's Kurosawa. This movie is available to stream on the Criterion channel. Also, I hope that you checked out The House of the Devil on Prime, and if you haven't, I recommend that you do so before listening to this podcast. Email any thoughts or screams you may have to projectorfuel at gmail.com. We'll read your comments on the show, and maybe we can learn a little bit from each other. That movie will be due by April 25th at noon, and I really hope to hear from you. All right, let's get started. Uh, let's cut the chit-chat. Ask Trevor why he picked the movie. Trevor, scary boy Dylan, why did you pick The House of the Devil? Uh, well, first of all, hi. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, last time I was on the show, we discussed The Night of the Living Dead, one of the big, you know, I, I think I described it as one of the big five in terms of influence. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to talk about a movie that's super influential amongst like the new era of young-ish, <laughs> you know, late 20s, early 30s horror filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's Ty West's The House of the Devil, of course, as you said. So basically this movie came out in 2009 uh we were just about to hit the boom of 80s nostalgia you're well aware everyone's well aware of what the 2010s were like with stranger things and everything kind of for some reason i and i don't have a reason for this harkening back to the 80s absolutely and this i still think uh a beat that like i said it started kind of the trend although you know it's not it wasn't a hugely successful or widely seen movie at the time Uh, but i think it did it best uh you know like um this is weirdly specific to get into right away but do you you remember when you were watching the film and you saw um first of all Greta Gerwig show up in the scene and that but uh, all the pizza and the Pepsi logo and like yeah. it's super subtle to the point where if well okay so when I saw this movie it was in 2010 and I was uh in my first year of college and I saw that scene and until I saw that scene and Greta Gerwig I didn't know this was a movie that was released in 2009 so that should give you an idea because I didn't know the lead actress Jocelyn Donahue at all I think she's not only incredible in this movie but I think that she continues to be very good in everything she's been in. She was in Doctor Strange recently in a small role, and she was really good in it, but given what, you know, she was given. Yeah, I noticed, uh, I looked her up afterwards, and she's been doing a lot of sort of that underground horror stuff lately. Yeah, and I think she's she's amazing. One of, Easily one of my favorite genre actors. And, um, oh, to, sorry, it's super long-winded, but the reason I picked it is because I find this movie extremely influential on uh, myself and many uh, contemporary young uh, filmmakers. Ty West was sort of ahead of the curve in terms of, of like being able to bring craft to the horror genre after a decade of it kind of not having any craft um, mm-hmm. or lack of craft. You had like the, the torture movies, the saws and hostels. You had the insane amount of uh, remakes coming from Michael Blay's Platinum Dunes. Uh, so it was really nice to see an original nostalgic feeling, slow burn, Rosemary's Baby type horror movie. What Some of my favorite stuff in this movie other than aesthetics and I, I guess camera movement could technically be aesthetics, more technical, but is the uh, Ty West 
on a small budget, a relatively small budget. I mean, this movie was made for, I think, like $800,000, $900,000, which is pretty small for how good it looks. It was shot on film. He seems to constantly be ahead of the viewer, ahead of the smart horror viewer. Like the camera will move to just like an empty space in the house by Jocelyn. And you'll be like, uh-oh, something, something's going to pop out. Almost 80 to 90% of the time, nothing happens. You're just like super tense. I remember watching it with headphones on Netflix. I was in my room watching it and I just like, I would tense up like crazy. And by the time it was over, I was like, that's one of the scariest movies I've ever seen just in terms of just pure tension. Uh, because he gives it, he gives you the part, again, spoilers, uh, where in the beginning, A.J. Bowen, towards the beginning, after Greta drops off Jocelyn, he gives you that insane moment of violence where uh, she gets shot in the face in the cemetery right outside the house. Uh, so he'll he'll shock you right there, and then he'll be able to coast off of that shock for the next 40, 50 minutes without actually ever having to give you any payoff again. And I think that was a really brilliant move by him. Right. I, I looked it up, and I think that moment happens at about 45 or so minutes into the movie. Does the pacing and sort of stretched out style of this film... Is it only possible because we know it's a horror movie, so we know something's going to happen? Like, if we didn't know it was a horror movie, would we be as interested? I think it's the, it's a really good question. I think while you're watching it, it feels so familiar, if you've seen any 70s or 80s babysitter-type movies, that you get the tropes of the movie. I think that they're kind of, they hadn't been done, like I said, in a long time by the time that House of the Devil came out. So, the, like, again, retro nostalgic stuff was so prominent after this that, that when I saw this first, it felt so original. And now going back to it, I'm like, all these tropes are done so well. And this 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 level of craft is done way better than any 70s or 80s uh, babysitter movie. So you do know it's a horror movie. Uh, let's say you're watching it and you don't pick up that it's going to be a horror movie, which would be kind of odd that you wouldn't pick that up. But uh, with the music and the kind of look of the film, I think the performances are so good and it's so like interesting that I think it would be watchable without being a horror movie. I think that the horror is just the icing on the cake at that point. Do you know why he decided to... Uh, well, it seems like in the beginning, there was a filter over the camera where it was very grainy and noisy when she's looking at the house. What, what, which, what format did you watch it on? Uh, I just watched it through Amazon Prime. So I have the Blu-ray and that grain is definitely very noisy throughout. Uh, I've heard a lot about this. So the movie uh, was shot on film. Uh, so, but I think he may have added grain in kind of how Spielberg does. Mm -hmm. Like Spielberg shot movies on film and then for the Blu-ray, he would add grain to it. I think they may have done that for the Blu-ray because the Blu-ray is all that I, I've seen. I've only ever watched the Blu-ray other than when I saw it on Netflix in 2010, but I couldn't tell you what it actually looked like at that time. Okay, because yeah, my copy, it seemed very clean. Like that grain disappeared after the credits. It's possible that Amazon Prime like... <laughs> It was like I don't know. It could be it could be an uploading issue to Amazon Prime or something. But no, it's it's very noisy throughout on my Blu-ray. Quick question: Who would you marry from this movie? Who would I marry? Yeah, there's an obvious choice, I guess, in the main character. But aside from that, oh, okay. <laughs> you mean aside from Academy Award-winning uh, filmmaker Greta Gerwig as well? Or uh, you can go with Greta Gerwig, although it's her personality from the movie. Yeah, she's a little she's she's played a little annoying, but I think she's such a good actress that you kind of like that character when she gets shot it kind of sucks right because she she just wants what's best for her friend she's she's like it, it, it's funny i've actually never thought i've never really discussed this with anybody and i i, I don't mean to sign separate question i'll go back to it but she keeps telling jocelyn like don't go there don't go there and jocelyn's like no i have to go there and then she ends up getting shot and i've actually never thought about how tragic that is it's kind of like a trope for that character to die and you're not super surprised that character dies and they die in a shocking fashion but uh, tell me your answer uh i think i'd go with 
Tom Noonan's character. Because even at the end, he's still a nice guy. He's still trying to like be relatable and understanding and get on her level when she's like pregnant with Satan. I thought that was nice. Tom Noonan in this movie is like one of my favorite genre performances like ever. And that bit of casting is like unbelievable. He's so creepy, but also maybe if you were in Jocelyn's too, because it's played up a little bit like the way it's shot plays up how creepy he is because he's so tall. They're, they're looking up at him the whole time, you know. Uh, and I guess uh, being uh, Jocelyn's character's height you that's what you're looking at so it would be pretty creepy anyway but he's also super like kind of uh, well spoken and he talks real low until you know every once in a while he doesn't and then you get a, you get a good you know look at the intensity there but I think his performance is this is unbelievable. Right. It's very subtle, but it's it's cool. I, I, I wanted to like hear him out in the graveyard. That, that that scene is so good. Like the way I love how the slow burn goes uh, to this like kind of um, smash cut to black. And then we have the moon, the moon, the moon, the moon. And then it opens and the production value of the movie kind of goes down a little bit. Like things kind of look a little cheaper and the movie becomes schlockier. But um, it's so bloody and so violent for those last 10 minutes. Like he, you, if you're watching the movie, you're like this is really tense but is he ever going to give us what we want and then the last 10 minutes like oh absolutely like this movie like definitely gives horror fans what they want and you're right like his plea to her at the end is very much like I would not have been surprised if she just kind of like went along with it and like I I guess yeah sure I'll, I'll raise this kid you know so knowing you as a filmmaker and knowing that this was your recommendation I didn't know that there was going to be a horror payoff I thought this might have been like a bait and switch type horror movie and there was actually just some joke at the end yeah, people who uh, listen to this podcast might not know me as a filmmaker, might never know me as a filmmaker, but I have made two, um, I would say, legitimate short films, Foxwood and the Vicious, that are both on Alter, watchalter.com right now. And uh, I just made a third short, kind of a fun quarantine short, a two-minute short that's sort of a bait and switch, like you just said. And I just realized that, I mean, you were right, I guess, like, that makes it three for three on shorts that I've made that are bait and switches. So I can see why you would think that this one would have gone like the spoof route, because it kind of, it would be a really well-made accurate spoof if it meant to kind of a jokey thing at the end but um it doesn't and it's kind of terrifying and that last scene is like that really sealed it for me that very last scene where you're like you're like oh that was climactic but it wasn't super great and then you find out what happens at the very very end and you're like oh this is crazy so you picked this movie and you picked uh, night of the living dead and night of the living dead is in this movie oh yeah so that's a thing that um night of the living dead because it's public domain will be in a ton of movies like anytime someone is like flipping through the channels like you might as well put it in there for like production value reasons every script i write if a character is watching something on tv i'll leave it in there as like an easter egg for my buddy ian who's my co-writer and i'll always put a specific uh 1960s horror film is playing on the tv in black and white i'm gonna turn the tables on you real quick uh mm. what what did you think of this movie i mean i've gotten a little bit of what you thought but what what did you think uh, of the house of the devil um i wasn't as as gripped by it. I know I asked you to pick something that would be super scary and I think by the end uh, it was definitely very tense but uh, so much of it was following her around waiting for something to happen and I understand like the appeal of that especially in a horror film but for me that was uh I was just not as into that style yeah it kind of feels like a what like a Jackie Brown or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood feels like a hangout movie and those are the most contemporary idea um, hangout movies I can think of it, that's because of the budget kind of having to keep something low budget and spending all of your money in the last 10 minutes or so it really does kind of just follow this character around that it really hopes that you like that's why the performance is so impressive it's like if you you 
don't like Jocelyn Donahue's character in this movie, like you're not gonna like the movie. You're gonna probably hate it and turn it off. But uh, I just think she's so magnetic and it's so fun. Like when she puts the headphones on and dances around the house and she knocks the thing over and it's just like, I think upon rewatches, knowing that you know nothing's gonna happen until the last 10 minutes, you think it would be worthless upon rewatching it. But I just saw it on 35 millimeter at the Alamo Draft House, uh, you know, when uh, movie theaters used to be a thing. And Ty West was there and uh, Jocelyn and it actually, I've seen this movie three or four times last night must have been my uh, fourth time seeing it and it does have some rewatch value and I think that's really impressive for such a slow burn like this the only thing that I can really compare it to is like Rosemary's Baby I did like the payoff at the end and uh, it's a very clear comparison to Rosemary's Baby especially with that last shot it feels like a very nice I've seen like the Lincoln Film Center in New York um, play a double feature of this and Rosemary's Baby and I was like yeah that makes sense thematically it really works although we don't get any idea of that until the last 20 minutes I guess when they're she's drawing the the pentagram on her stomach I'm like oh here we go right you could you could probably maybe figure it out while watching but that's the thing is that you don't quite know what's going on until it happens and I think they do a really good job of that and setting it up with the full moon and stuff I mean it's it's all there the for the payoff it just takes a long time I call it um, cyclical writing I think I don't know if that's a real term or not but it basically it's just lining up all the dominoes and then mm-hmm. knocking them all over I think Edgar Wright's really good at that and uh, the British filmmaker Matthew Vaughn and also Ryan Johnson they're all very good at throughout their film setting up dominoes and then the last act just knocking them all over which is uh, very rewarding it makes for a gigantic fun climax but it's also extremely risky because if the payoff doesn't work, then the whole movie was for was for not. So this movie had some humor in it. There was some weird, like subtle humor. I think uh, the biggest thing that comes to mind for me is Tom Noonan's character insistent on uh, there's a number for pizza on the fridge. Yeah, it's funny because it plays with tropes like that, right? Like he keeps saying, you know, order pizza, order pizza. And us as the viewers, like, no, do not do that. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. and eventually she's just like, oh, I'm hungry. I'll just order pizza, you know? Yeah. And then the guy, the guy who we see shot the Greta Gerwig in the face shows up at the pizza. And you're like, no, you know, there's all these setups. I, I must put some context in for your younger viewers, especially around this time, there was a lot of what's called mumblecore happening. <laughs> and this was one of the very first mumblecore horror movies. I, I should have mentioned that at the very beginning is that I'm not a big fan of mumblecore, but when you mix mumblecore with a genre movie like this, I think it really works well, you know? The Joe Swanberg type movies. I think the next mumblecore type movie like this was a uh, year next, which was a big uh, South by Southwest movie that came out, I think like 2013. I guess Greta Gerwig being in there should have been like a big red flag for it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so like uh, Joe Swanberg was like the king of Mumblecore for a long time. And I think uh, Joe Swanberg's in the film Door Next, uh, which is directed by Adam Wingard and written by Simon Barrett. Um, and then I th- Ty West might be in um, uh, Your Next. It's just kind of this like this collective that was going around. Because in the early 2000s, you had the Splat Pack uh, instead of the Rat Pack. And that was James Wan, Eli Roth, Neil Marshall, who made The Descent and Dog Soldiers, both of which, uh, you know, I, I had offered to watch for, for this episode. But uh, maybe we'll get to them. Those are both really great movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, these were basically filmmakers that were known for their splatter, their gore. Uh, Rob Zombie, I think, might have been considered in the splat pack. And then you had, like, this mumblecore gang of people coming up. And, you know, it was cool to see that Ty West, who he only makes horror movies. He made this. He made The Innkeepers. He made The Sacrament, also starring Joe Swanberg. And now he mostly just makes TV, uh, because I'm assuming the, move, the, the money's really good. <laughs> he was the mumblecore horror filmmaker. And if you like this movie, you should check out his next movie. It's called The Innkeepers with Pat Healy, who 
was one of my absolute favorite character actors. And then Sarah Paxton, who was in a lot of those like South by Southwest type movies around that time. What TV did he do? He, uh, he directed that Shyamalan produced show Wayward Pines. He did a lot of those, a lot of those episodes. Um, and then he's just been doing a lot of other stuff. Is he breaking out of the genre at all? No, Wayward Pines is definitely like horror thriller. Yeah. That's what he does. He's very good at it. He has the craft. He has like the mind for it. And I, w- I can't wait until he makes another film. Uh, what, I, what I have to say is that when he did leave the horror genre after The Innkeepers and the Sacrament, he did try to make a, a Western film starring John Travolta and uh, Taisa Formiga and Ethan Hawke. It was called In a Valley of Violence, which is an amazing title. And it just was really, really, uh, in my opinion, flat. And Ooh. that was the last we saw of him in features and he just went to TV, so. What's your favorite aspect about this movie? I think that a movie like this having craft is my favorite thing about it. I mm. love the way the camera moves. Uh, I love the way it looks. Performances are one thing, and I will say the performances in this for what could very easily be a schlocky horror movie um, are very good, but it's it's all about the craft, you know? Uh, I think a movie, let's take, for example, a movie like Joker, right? A movie like Joker has craft. And so, like, I went and saw it, and I was like, wow, this movie actually has craft for, like, you know, something that's directed by Todd Phillips. And I was like, I might like this movie. And then it turns out I hated the script, so I didn't like the movie. But the craft of a movie is really is what's going to sell me at the end of the day. And I think The House of the Devil on a very low budget has has like an extreme amount of it. Right, because it has sort of just a simple, easy story. And then the craft is just indulging and taking its time with the story. I mean, it, it was it's possible that like you like you weren't so high on it. And I can understand a lot of people. I mean, I saw on IMDb, it had a 6.4. I can understand a lot of people not being high on it because it's just not working for them. And so it's just going to be like a, a, a dying, a dead fish for 90 minutes, you know? But someone who can get caught up on it, he has uh, directing is, I always kind of uh, goof around if I'm like interviewing uh, directors at the theater. I will say like, finish this sentence, directing is, directing is. And it's funny because directors always have a different answer. My thing is directing is um, controlling tone. And I think that he controls the tone of this. And like you said, he'll even inject a little bit of humor in there, but it never feels out of place. It all feels kind of, again, this is all my opinion, but uh, I think he does a great job of using craft and then um, controlling tone. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with you. I think the, uh, one of my favorite parts of this movie is just the lighting everywhere. It's so authentic to, I think, an older feel of film but I really love the scene where uh, the two girls are driving down and you see the uh, trees illuminated outside behind them in the windows and it was just creepy and subtle and cool. Yeah, and it's just such simple filmmaking. He just, uh, the cameraman's just in the backseat of the car, shooting one angle on Greta and then shooting one angle on Jocelyn, and they're just talking for a really long time. Uh, but like you said, we see from the low angle the trees, and it, it, it's a dynamic shot, and it just works. So so why did he kill Greta Gerwig? That is a good question. Probably because if, it, if there was any way that Jocelyn felt like she was in trouble, she would call Greta. Because later in the movie, she tries calling Greta, mm-hmm. and she goes like, it's, it's the a fake phone call thing ah i got you like that part that keeps happening right which is perfect perfect comedic bit for a horror movie absolutely because it, it's real i mean it's so realistic i don't know if people were doing it in the 80s but i know when i was in high school around the time i saw this people were still doing that with like their flip phones so that was the i mean i think his performance was excellent but his look was the only thing that didn't really fit in that last scene when it's the crazy witch and then tom noonan and his wife and then this like film school looking kid just standing there in a robe i mean yeah, i mean you hit the nail on the head so uh aj bowen is also another very prolific kind of mum- 
mumblecore um, horror person. He, he's in a lot of horror films around that time. He still is. And uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. He doesn't fit in. Like, he doesn't seem like the kid of Tom Noonan and uh, that other actress that I'm forgetting her name, but she's, she's also so good in this movie. Yeah, she was the perfect level of creepy when she's talking on the couch. Yeah, because when she, she's able to be like fully creepy, like she, she's not like Tom Noonan, like, they're, like the, you're immediately creeped out by her and she's creepy the whole time. And then by, on the flip side of the coin, you have Tom Noonan who gets to be like the nice dad character to the young girl who's babysitting, quote unquote babysitting. And you know, just something that just occurred to me now, Tom Noonan survives, so he's somewhere in this world. Oh yeah, that's that's a good point. Oh shoot, I forgot because at the end she shoots herself. She doesn't shoot him first. Right. Oh dang, I've never again. I've, I've like I said, I've seen this movie like four or five, four or five times. I don't know. And you're right, Tom. I mean, he's go he's got to be like going to jail. I mean, like once they get to that house, right? Well, I don't know. Maybe he's got some satanic mischief going on. But I mean, he was stabbed. But I'm assuming he survived that. I mean, you know, I'm surprised, and I've never thought about this either. I'm surprised there's not a sequel to this movie, not going with the Jocelyn character. But if that guy escapes and there's a bigger cult out there, at the next lunar eclipse, I'm surprised that they haven't made like a House of the Devil 2. Because this movie is fairly successful after the fact. Like it found a really big audience on VOD and stuff. Even like the VHS was the first wide-made VHS. I, said, I read on IMDb that it was like the first wide um, release of a VHS clamshell box since A, a, a History of Violence, that Viggo Morton in uh, David Cronenberg movie. It's trying hard with that retro vibe, but I think it really knocks it out of the park. Yeah, I don't know. I, I would love to see an, uh, a sequel or something. I mean, I don't know how well it could be done, but I think uh, we were just teased for so long and there's so much juicy meat at the end there. I want to see more of whatever this true story, this thing was based on. Yeah, and I, I would just want to see more of Tom Noonan, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's like a career best performance for him. And I don't say that lightly. I mean, he's been very, very good. Uh, I mean, he was an anomaly and not like what seven years after this and he played every character right. <laughs> good in that too yeah and i saw him recently in a mystery train where he plays like a big creep falling around a girl which is great yeah he's so good i was watching heat the other day and i was like oh it's tom noonan wow like i mean everybody in the movie heat is like a character actor mm. and i was like, dang tom noonan yeah he's great he's pretty much great in everything yeah all right well hopefully we get some more noonan soon but in the meantime, uh, how's uh, how's the quarantine been treating you? Uh, it's good. It's kind of I, I'm I live in Costa Mesa, so it's you have to wear a, a mask outside, and I really uh, I like that. You know, <laughs> going out and everyone has a mask on it. It makes it feel safer, but it also weirdly kind of encourages you to go places because you're like, oh, well, everyone will have a mask on, I'll be fine. So it's kind of this double-edged sword where it'd be like, if no one had a mask on, then everybody would be really afraid of each other. But now that everyone has a mask on, it almost feels kind of Relaxed, almost like oh, coronavirus isn't a thing that's happening, but like it's fully. We just got out of peak week, and I just read on the news today it was like wave two is coming, and it's going to be worse. And I'm like, what? You know, it's been it's been okay. Are you still taking naps? I've took one. I I was just discussing with my girlfriend that I've taken one quarantine nap this entire quarantine, and I was like, I'm going to take one tomorrow. So uh, check that out. It's my new podcast. It's called Quarantine Naps, and it launches tomorrow. Nice. All right. Who do you got guesting on your first app? Uh, my dog, Bowser. Wow. Okay. Right on. Yeah. So the Frida Cinema uh, is the nonprofit independent art house that I work for, the only art house in Orange County and the only nonprofit art house in Southern California. Uh, when the uh, COVID crisis uh, hit, we were the first, I think, I, I was told we were the first theater in Southern California to shut down. I don't know if that's true or not, but we shut down way before we needed to. Um, and we weren't sure what we were going to do uh, or if we were going to be able to open our doors again. 
but we actually found some solace in streaming films. Uh, a lot of these distributors came to us and have other gone to other art houses and said, we will split 50% of the funds raised through this stream, these streaming links. And I, uh, I thank those distributors basically who are saving these art houses so that when this is all over, these art houses are still open to play their movies. Uh, I really appreciate them. If you go to the cinema.org, you'll see that weekly we're playing uh, anywhere between 10 and 20 films, streaming brand new art house films. We're starting to uh, kind of put repertory movies into the mix. Like we're going to play that Bellatar film. This hasn't been announced yet, but uh, uh, Satan Sa- 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 Tango. Have you heard of this? Satan Tango. It's like the seven hour, 11 minute Bellatar film. Yeah, that's one of his shorter ones, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's one of his uh, more lively short ones. Uh, and he... Uh, we're going to play that, which is really cool. That's going to be one of our first repertory titles and it'll just be fun to throw a seven hour like streaming link up. Um, and uh, also on May 5th, which is Giving Tuesday, I'm doing another 10 hour streamathon that'll be live on YouTube where I'll have a bunch of cool guests come on and we'll just chat about movies and stuff like that all in the name of Giving Tuesday. Okay, that's awesome. That's great to hear. Yeah, the uh, I'm glad to see that the Frida's still living because uh, when this is all over, I, I that's going to be one of the first places I go back to. Yeah, we, uh, we miss everybody. Uh, are you planning on making uh, any quarantine shorts or anything? As of now, I have been working on a project inspired by your work, actually, but I'll talk to you more about that later. Since uh, the last time you've been on the podcast, you've made something. Oh, yeah. I uh, Well, I, I made a, a quarantine short, which I, everyone will roll their eyes at, but uh, it's two minutes long and it's fun. You know, like I didn't want to, I think anybody who's like, oh, I made a quarantine short, don't roll your eyes at it because it's like I got bored and I wanted to make a movie. I made a movie and Ian, my co-writer, co-director, like I sent it to him and he was just like this is like pretty good that he edited it and threw some sound design and it's called the people under the porch and uh we're gonna submit it to like all these inevitable quarantine film festivals that'll be out there soon so where can they watch it now um it's gonna be part of the hashtag corman challenge and it'll be on our instagram uh at at ghost party pictures it'll be on our twitter at ghost party pics um and then eventually we'll just embed it on our website ghostpartypictures.com okay well you said it was fun but i thought it was pretty darn scary yeah well i don't know i kind of i kind of i mixed those two words together the house of the devil to me is a very fun film trevor thank you so much for picking this movie and thank you so much for coming on here um next time i'm on what should we discuss well you know you if you want to keep going down the scary routes you haven't scared me yet uh well i am trevor scary boy dylan as you said at the beginning i'm sure and um i do have one that i want to talk about maybe next time i don't know what i don't know maybe you'll have to approve it but it's a it's a film it's a french film from 1896 uh it's called la arrivo de truin in gure a la ciudad i believe it to be the scariest film ever made you're telling me this is going to make me jump out of my house i'm telling you that when the film came out that it um literally scared people out of the theaters is, right. is there is there a place people can watch it before uh we get into it uh yeah so this film is uh again called la arrivo de truin in gure a la ciudad it's uh, on uh youtube and uh, it's pretty short, uh, but it is really scary. So be careful out there. Okay, nice. And I like that it's French too. That means it's uh, important. Yeah, and it's in black and white too, which is super retro. Oh, nice. For us film kids, this is going to be a good one. All right. Well, thank you for having me on the show and uh, long live Projector Fuel Film Club. Thank you, Trevor. I'll talk to you soon. Trevor has graciously agreed to return to the Film Club podcast in a couple of weeks. We'll see if he picks a movie that actually scares me this time, Trevor Scary Boy Dylan. But thank you so much for joining me today, and uh, thank you, the listener, for checking out the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the film. 
please join us in conversation for the movie Cure, due by April 25th at noon. Another scary one, we're just doubling down here. Thanks again to At The Workery on Instagram for the picture in our profile. Hope everyone stays safe, stays sane. I had a pretty stressful day today, and uh, I'll talk to you later. Yeah.